0: We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 49, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 28. Genesis 49, verses 1 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben You are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good, and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden, and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that its rider shall fall backward." I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer to let loose. He uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Who... "'Is Aslan?' asked Susan. "'Aslan,' said Mr. Beaver. "'Why don't you know he's the king, the lord of the whole wood?' Is, "'Is he a man?' asked Lucy. "'Aslan a man?' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. "'I tell you, he is the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. "'Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? "'Aslan is a lion.' The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Now, this introduction to Aslan occurs midway through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan, of course, is the Christ figure in the series The Chronicles of Narnia, and there's no doubt that Lewis took inspiration from biblical passages, such as Revelation 5, verse 5, which says, "...but one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals." The lion of the tribe of Judah. It's clearly a reference to Christ there in Revelation 5, but where did Revelation get this idea of the Messiah pictured as a lion Well, it comes from our text this morning in Genesis 49. In this chapter, we have the end of Jacob's story. He blesses his 12 sons who stand as the heads of the tribes of Israel. And depending on how your Bible is printed, you may be able to see that most of chapter 49 from verse 2 through verse 27 is actually set as a poem. It's poetic verse. This is Jacob blessing his sons, the children of Israel, and it's set in the form of a poem, and that's significant because we see this same format multiple times throughout the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Most notably, at the close of three major sections or periods of the history portrayed in these five books, Genesis 49 marks the close of the patriarchal narratives and the life of Jacob. Numbers 24 marks the end of the 40 years of wilderness wandering. And then Deuteronomy 32 and 33 mark the close of the giving of the law and the life of Moses. In each case, we have the last recorded words of an important prophetic figure, Jacob, Balaam, and Moses. In each case the prophet begins his poem by uh, calling for an audience to listen to him. Jacob gather together in verse 1. Balaam in Numbers 24:14 come. Moses in Deuteronomy 31:28 gather to me. In each case the prophet announces that he has a message to convey to his listeners. Jacob that I may tell you what shall befall you. Balaam, I will advise you what this people will do to your people. Moses, that I may speak these words, for evil will befall you. And in each case, the prophet gives us an interpretive clue as to how we are to understand his prophecy. Jacob, in the last days. Balaam, in the latter days. Moses, in the latter days. This isn't a mistake or an accident. That these passages are so similar. It seems rather clear that the attentive reader of the Pentateuch is supposed to see this connection, and particularly that this last element in the last days gives us a clue that these historical narratives have in them a measure of eschatological hope that we are meant to see. We're meant to read the historical narratives with an eye toward the future The events of the past foreshadow what is to come. Balaam makes it clear that he's looking to the future, to the far future, in his prophecy in Numbers 24 when he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall arise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemies, shall be a possession While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Earlier in his prophecy, interestingly, Balaam made reference to a lion. He says this, he bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Does that sound familiar? It's a direct quote from Genesis 49, 9, which Balaam would have had no way of knowing It hadn't been written down at that point and Balaam was not of the children of Israel so he wouldn't even have been privy to their oral history. How could Balaam give this prophecy in the exact same words that Jacob used here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? These texts are tied together from Deuteronomy 32 and 33, Numbers 24, and Genesis 49 In Deuteronomy 32 and 33, where Moses is prophesying over the people of Israel before they enter the promised land, he describes God as a shepherd and as a rock, language that is used here in verse 24. Moses also blesses 11 tribes. Interesting. Only 11. He does not bless one of them, and we'll discuss why in a moment. He speaks of the defeat of their enemies and the rejoicing of the Gentile nations in the triumph of the Lord. Amos chapter 9 verses 11 through 15 picks up much of the language of Genesis 49, particularly the language found in the blessings of Jacob of Judah and Joseph, and uses that language to describe the coming day of the Lord that the minor prophets speak so much about. Amos says that the tabernacle of David will be restored, that Israel will be expanded to include all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And that the dwelling place of God's people is described in Amos with idyllic language, very similar to that found in all three of these poetic prophecies in the Pentateuch. The Jerusalem Council on Acts 15 actually quotes that passage in Amos 9, saying that it was beginning to be fulfilled by the spread of the gospel to the Gentile nations in the latter days. The point of all this is to see that the poetic blessings of Jacob over his sons are intended to point us to Christ. That the future hope of God's people from every tribe ends in a blessing that is centered on the coming king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jacob blesses all 12 of his sons here, and in most of the blessings, we get glimpses of the eschatological hope of the Messiah, King Jesus. Now, there are a couple of them that is slightly difficult to see. Reuben is blessed first as the firstborn, but he isn't given the birthright of the firstborn, that's given to Joseph as we saw last week. In fact, First Chronicles actually tells us this is the case as it recounts the genealogies of various tribes. It says, Reuben was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. And as we see here in Genesis 49, Jacob begins the blessing with Reuben, but indeed the birthright does not go to Reuben. Jacob pronounces over Judah the blessing of a coming ruler and over Joseph the birthright of the firstborn. His blessing over Reuben starts well, but then quickly turns to a note of judgment. In verse 3, we're told what Reuben should have been, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power but instead he turned out to be unstable as water. You shall not excel. And you can see that there's a poetic play on words in this blessing. He should have excelled in dignity and excelled in power. Instead, he would not excel because he was unstable both morally and in wisdom. Remember, Reuben had defiled his father's bed by having relations with his father's concubine. He had also become unstable as a counselor, offering to let Jacob kill his two sons if he couldn't keep Benjamin safe in Egypt. Nonetheless, Reuben is not excluded from the nation. His descendants do have a place in the inheritance. This is a clear display of God's grace to Reuben. Simeon and Levi are blessed together in verses 3 through 7, and I will admit it took me about three times reading through the chapter to account for all 12 sons, because I kept missing the point that Jacob was blessing Simeon and Levi together. Jacob says that he he recalls their cruelty in the episode having to do with their sister Dinah in the city of Shechem. He says they will be divided and scattered throughout Israel. What's interesting is that the allotment of the land, if you skip forward to Joshua, uh, the allotment of the land that is given to Simeon is just a selection of cities within the territory allotted to Judah. Simeon is eventually dissolved and absorbed into the tribe of Judah and ceases to be a distinct tribe. As I said in the end of Deuteronomy, Moses blesses the tribes and he does not bless the tribe of Simeon. He blesses the other 11 tribes and never mentions Simeon. This is both a judgment and a grace, I think. It's a judgment because Simeon loses their distinctive place, but they are absorbed into the ruling tribe and still remain a part of the people of God. Levi is scattered throughout Israel uh, as their tribe is later taken by God to be priests and to serve in the tabernacle and the temple before the Lord. They're scattering throughout the other tribes places them in proximity where they can serve the other tribes as those who mediate between God and the people. And I think it foreshadows the priesthood of all believers being spread throughout the entire nation. We'll skip over Judah for a moment and come back to him shortly. In verse 13, the blessing of Zebulun, we begin to see some of the eschatological hope of the blessing. It is said in verse 13, "'Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea.'" he shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Now, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, take a look at the allotment given to Zebulun when you have a chance. They are landlocked, no seashore, not on the Sea of Galilee, not on the Mediterranean. They have no access to the seashore. How can they be a haven for the ships? and a haven for the sea. They're not anywhere close to Sidon. Sidon's not even in the territory of Israel. It's far to the north. In fact, Asher and Naphtali lie between Zebulun and Sidon. Zebulun, interestingly, means lofty dwelling. And so here's another poetic play on words. Lofty dwelling shall dwell by the haven of the sea and become a dwelling for the ships. This points forward to the expansion of the dwelling place of God's people outside the land of Canaan, spreading to the ends of the earth. This gives a decidedly eschatological flavor to the blessing because Zebulun never enjoyed this blessing in the time of ancient Israel. In verses 14 and 15, we have the blessing on Issachar. He was compared to a strong donkey, a beast of burden. And again, there's a play on words here since Issachar means work or hired hand. It closes with a note of judgment, though, because Issachar's willing to give up his freedom in order to enjoy leisure and luxury. But the blessing also contains a note of eschatological hope. The land was pleasant and rest was good, which draws our mind back to Eden, where God declared everything to be good, And rested on the seventh day. Of course, this was forfeited by Adam's sin. But the aim of Eden was always the completion of Adam's work. He was to tend the garden, to cultivate it, and to expand its borders to fill the earth. Had Adam completed that work, he would have entered the rest of his Lord. And this is held out throughout the scriptures as the promise of the kingdom for God's people. In the eternal kingdom, we shall dwell in a pleasant land and enter into our Lord's rest. Issachar settled for something less here on earth. The next son to receive a blessing is Dan, and he's the first son of a concubine to be blessed. And just as we saw last week with Joseph's sons, Jacob is careful to note that this son of a concubine, and therefore by extension the other sons of the concubines as well, are to be considered as one of the tribes of Israel. And again, there's a poetic word play here. Dan means to judge, and we're told that Dan will judge his people. Dan is a small tribe, but one that is deadly to their enemies. Samson is the most famous judge to arise from the tribe of Dan. But ultimately, we know that judgment belongs to the son of Judah, who is Christ. And though Dan will have some success against his enemies, Jacob concludes his blessing in verse 18 by saying, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. The future of the nation is dependent on God working their salvation, and that hope of salvation is centered on the promise of a king to come from the tribe of Judah. Gad is the next son to be blessed in verse 19, and the wordplay here is, is quite extensive. Gad means troop, and he will face a troop of enemies who will trample him, but he will triumph in the end. The new King James does a good job of retaining that alliteration that's in the original Hebrew. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. The prophecy looks forward to a time in the last days, as Jacob said, when their enemies will be defeated. And again, that hope is bound up with the coming king. As Gad uh, is given this blessing. It's a picture, really, of the experience of God's people throughout time. John Calvin commented on this verse, saying, the prophecy may be applied to the whole church, which is assailed not for one day only, but is perpetually crushed by fresh attacks until at length God shall exalt it to honor. We understand that our eventual triumph over our enemies of Satan's sin and death is won by the hands of the king. Christ Jesus. In verse 20, we're told that Asher will enjoy an abundance of rich food, rich bread and royal dainties. And this points forward to the royal provision provided by God for his people in the eternal kingdom, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Naphtali is described as a deer enjoying his freedom and speaking words of beauty. Throughout the scripture, we see references to deer, uh, referencing the freedom uh, and the joy that God's people have. Habakkuk 3.19 says, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. And in Isaiah, we have a classic passage that Peter later, or Paul later quotes in Romans 10, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. There seems to be something of this in the blessing on Naphtali, who uses beautiful words, who proclaims beautiful words to his brothers. Then comes the blessing of Joseph in verses 22 through 26. Joseph is fruitful, fulfilling the promise of a multitude of descendants, Though he has encountered enemies, even his own brothers at times, yet he has persevered and prevailed, and he has done so only by the grace and the strength of God. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. It's the mighty God of Israel, the Lord as the good shepherd, the stone of Israel, who is Christ that has persevered and strengthened Joseph. The blessings that he receives extend to the heights of heaven, to the depths of the ocean, and for breath it extends to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. There is an abundance of blessing that exceeds all expectation and hope. The last son then to be blessed is Benjamin, and he is said to be like a wolf who takes his prey in the morning, devours it, but has enough abundance remaining in the evening to divide the spoils. Benjamin, in fact, has an impressive list of descendants who play key roles in the life of the nation, even to the spread of the gospel in the New Testament. Ehud, one of my favorite judges in the book of Judges, is from the tribe of Benjamin. As are King Saul and his son Jonathan. Esther and Mordecai are Benjamites. And, of course, the Apostle Paul, who shares the gospel and the blessings of Jesus Christ with the Gentiles is from the tribe of Benjamin. But notice the common theme running throughout many of these blessings. There's a common theme of prosperity, of abundance, spoken of in terms that evoke memories of the Garden of Eden and hopes of the eternal kingdom to come. John Salehamer in his commentary says, the focus of Jacob's words has been the promise That when the one comes to whom the kingship truly belongs, there will once again be the peace and prosperity that God intended all to have in the Garden of Eden. Nowhere is this clearer than in the blessing of Judah in verses 8 through 12. It's in the blessing of Judah that we find the central eschatological hope of the poem. For it's here that we find the hope of the Messiah And as I said earlier, the future hope of all God's people from whatever tribe they belong to is found and centered upon the coming king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In verse 8, we find that Jacob is, is going to ascend to rule, or Judah, I'm sorry. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah will defeat the nation's enemies so decisively that his brothers will praise him for his deliverance as if he is a warrior returning from conquest and they greet him and praise him as he enters the city. And again, there's a wordplay here because the, the name Judah means Yahweh be praised. And here, his brothers praise him. It's interesting that at this time in the nation's history, Joseph. Is the brother who has seen his other brothers bow before him, not Judah. But in the future, Judah's brothers will bow before him. And yes, King David will come from the line of Judah, and the people will sing his praises as he defeats their enemies. But that is merely a foreshadow pointing forward to David's greater offspring. Israel will bow before the seed of Judah, who is the Christ. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David himself, the king who came from Judah, wrote psalms portraying the reign of Christ in terms that no earthly king could fulfill. Psalm 2. The sure decree I will declare, the Lord has said to me, Thou art mine only son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me and for heritage the heathen I'll make thine, and for possession I to thee will give earth's utmost line. Thou shalt as with a mighty rod of iron break them all, and as the potter's shard thou shalt them dash in pieces small. In Psalm 72, he writes, the, His large and great dominion shall from sea to sea extend. It from the river shall reach forth unto earth's utmost end. Yea, all the mighty kings on earth before him down shall fall, and all the nations of the world do service to him shall. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, and blessed all nations shall him call. David himself. His 21 heirs who sit on the throne of Judah up to the Babylonian captivity, the kingdom over which they reigned, could never live up to the, the grandness and the glory depicted in the Psalms that he wrote. As Michael Lefebvre writes, even though they were penned centuries before Christ came, the Psalms really are the hymns of Christ. He's the only one who could live up to the picture of the king presented there. In Genesis 49, this picture of of Judah reigning is extended in verse 9, where we are given the image of Judah as a lion. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Judah is like a a strong lion who has taken his prey, feasted, and now he rests. Who dares to rouse him? Benjamin Keach, one of our particular Baptist forefathers, explains that the lion is a very fierce, fearless, and terrible creature, especially when he is roused up and provoked by an enemy. Keach then references Isaiah 41:25, which says, I have raised up one from the north and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name and he shall come against princes as through mortar and the potter, as the potter treads clay. That is, he's going to tread on his enemies as though walking on a road paved with mortar or clay. Keach then continues and says, Christ, when he is roused up by the cruelties of the enemies of his church and the cries of his people, will be very terrible. He will come upon princes as upon mortar, though now he seems still and peaceable like a lamb, yet the day is at hand when he will rise up like a lion to destroy and devour at once. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, as it says in Revelation five five. In verse ten this this picture is completed with the image of this king who is to come from the line of Judah, It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. A scepter is a symbol of kingship and of of rule. A lawgiver is a ruler who executes the law in judgment. Twice in the Psalms, it is declared that Judah is the Lord's lawgiver in Psalm 60 verse seven and in Psalm 108 verse eight. But Isaiah declares For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. This lawgiver from the tribe of Judah would be both king and lord, both man and God. The scepter of the king, the symbol of his regal command, was at that time a long staff, which the king would hold in his hand when he's speaking to the assembled congregation. And when seated on his throne in judgment, he would rest the butt of the staff on the floor between his feet and hold it with both hands. Numbers 21.18 mentions lawgivers and their staffs, and there's a relief carving of a Persian king in the ruins of a palace from the 5th century B.C. depicting just such a pose of the king sitting on his throne, holding his staff with two hands, with it resting between his feet. That is the image that we're given here in Verse 10 the image of a descendant from Judah who will rule as king, sitting in judgment over the people. This phrase, until Shiloh comes, is an interesting one. It's used only here in the entire Old Testament. and Shiloh is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word. It's not a translation. should not be confused with the city of Shiloh that's mentioned in later accounts as a different Hebrew word and that was located in the territory of Ephraim, not Judah. Commentators don't agree on the meaning of the word here, but they do agree that it is likely a reference to the Messiah. They tend to agree that it has some relation to the Hebrew word shalom, for peace, and maybe a reference to the Messiah as the king or prince of peace. Some have translated verse 10 this way, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet." Until he comes to whom it belongs, the nations will obey him. Now, this interpretation is based on Ezekiel 21:27, which says of the throne of Israel, Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. The indication is that Judah's descendants will reign in Israel as kings, But ultimately, there will come a messianic king, the one who has been promised since Genesis chapter 3, whose kingdom and rule belongs to him. And when he sits on the throne, he will rule not just over Israel, but over the nations. The final phrase of verse 10, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. We find that phrase echoed in the New Testament uh, in Romans chapter 1 concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for His name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. The Gentile believers in Rome are the beginning of the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10. Their obedience to Christ in faith marks the obedience of the people to the one who was to come from Judah as the lion to rule the nations. Verses 11 and 12 then describe for us the, the abundance of the kingdom as it exists under the rule of this lion of the tribe of Judah. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes were darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Under his rule, there will be such an abundance of wine and wealth that the choicest vines will be used as hitching posts for common beasts of burden. The best vintages of wine will be so abundant as to be as commonplace as wash water. His eyes darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk gives a picture of strength and health. This king from the tribe of Judah is the central picture of the poetic blessing for all the sons. All the tribes receive a blessing of their own and it says in verse 28, all these are the tribes of Judah or the tribes of Israel and this is what their father spoke to them and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Three times the word blessing is used in this verse. It indicates how important this blessing is. Each one received a blessing, but those blessings could be summed up with two simple ideas. The defeat of all their enemies leading to the peaceful reign of the Messiah and the great prosperity and abundance of the kingdom under his rule. All the blessings of Jacob's sons are tied together and centered on the hope of the coming king. Twelve tribes, vastly different, but one king. The hope for the future of God's people from every tribe is centered on the coming of the king from the tribe of Judah. Later biblical writers pick up the language in the imagery of verses 8 through 12 and use them to describe Christ the Messiah. Isaiah describes the coming Savior with these words, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I, who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart And the year of my redeemed is come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered, but there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Here the Savior is pictured coming in judgment to defeat all his enemies. He is mighty to save. His robes are stained with the blood of his enemies as if he had been treading a winepress. This imagery is picked up again in Revelation 19 to describe the return of Christ in judgment at the last day, as Jacob said. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Messiah is pictured as a conquering warrior king. He sits on a white horse, projecting strength and power. He is faithful and true. He judges and makes war and righteousness. His eyes are flame red like wine. He wears the marks of royalty and sovereign rule. His robe is dipped in blood. He has tread the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God against his enemies. His sword, interestingly, is not in his fist, which would depict military strength, but rather it comes out of his mouth. He strikes the nations with his words, beautiful words. His name is called the Word of God, and it is by the Word that he triumphs over his enemies, ruling them with a rod of iron, a kingly scepter. And he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who dares to rouse him. He defeats the beast and his armies who have persecuted the people of God, and in the following chapters he executes judgment and ushers in the abundance of the coming kingdom the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, the river of life, the tree of life, the reestablishment of the garden of God. This is the central hope of the blessing that Jacob gives to his sons, the coming of the king of glory to establish an everlasting kingdom. The eschatological hope of the blessing that is given to each tribe ultimately finds its fulfillment in the lion of the tribe of Judah. Justin Martyr, an early church father, uh, wrote a book that we call His First Apology. It was addressed to the Roman emperor in an effort to persuade him of the truth of Christianity. And in that writing, he points to Genesis 49.10 and the promise of the nations giving obedience to the Messiah. And he says that the spread of the gospel to all the nations in his day is a fulfillment of this promise. And in Revelation, John sees the final fulfillment in the return of Christ, the King of Kings. Every tribe found its ultimate hope in the promise of the King who would come from Judah, not in their own blessing, but in the blessing of the Savior. This was true in ancient Israel according to the flesh, and it is true for spiritual Israel, the church as well. R.C. Sproul commented on Genesis 49.10 and said, Because we are grafted into the tree of Israel by faith when we trust in Christ alone, we can be assured that we will enjoy the future glory promised to Israel and its king. Even when things look darkest for the church, we know that the days to come will see victory for the Lord and His people. Let us not be discouraged when we, all, when we fall or see the world crumbling around us, for God has promised To exalt his people Israel on that final day. The blessings of the sons of Jacob, the children of Israel, found temporary fulfillment in the nation of Israel and the kingship of David, but their ultimate fulfillment is found in the last days at the coming of the Son of David, the one who will vanquish all enemies, sit on the throne forever, judge righteously, and bring lasting peace between God and man. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. It's in Daniel 7. This is the central hope and theme of Jacob's blessing on his son's In fact, it's the central hope and theme of Genesis as a whole, even of the entire Bible, the hope of the coming of Christ. Look to Christ for your hope. Put your trust in him. Let let your hope be found in him alone, for he is called faithful and true. Is there anyone who can appear before Christ without their knees knocking then they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe? Safe? Don't you hear what I'm telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him. Are you longing to see the king? I pray that you are, and that when he comes, you will see him as one who belongs to him, and not as an enemy to be vanquished on that day. Let's pray.